G'day, welcome along to another sermon from Good News Christian Church in Howrah, Tasmania, Australia. I'm Bernard Kane. I'm the pastor. Get in touch sometime at goodnewschristianchurch.org or why not come by one Sunday morning. For now, here's the sermon. I rarely read anything on singleness these days. Um, so this is Sari King. She's a, a Christian woman from Sydney who happens to be single, unmarried. I rarely read anything on singleness these days. Having read countless books and articles over the years, both secular and Christian, and listened to what must be dozens of talks, interviews and sermons, although there have been the occasional rare nuggets of pure gold on the topic, I've generally found that much that's canvassed seldom tends to lift the single person's horizon beyond what I've loosely coined the predictable three C's of singleness, that is contentment, choosiness and a call to mitigate the grief of childlessness by minding other people's children. Brothers and sisters, so this morning and over the coming couple of weeks, we're going to shine the spotlight on various topics related to or about sexuality. Uh, we're going to try the gospel, which we're going to try to bring the gospel to bear on each one of those. Uh, we're going to try to uncover how the gospel is genuinely good news for people um, you know, whose life experience is uh, one of these different paths. Uh, we're going to try to get beyond the so-called easy answers, you know, the two-dimensional, kind of unlivable, unhelpfully bland. I mean, I think Sari King has uh, quite accurately described those easy answers well in the case of singleness, those three Cs. Hurry up and get contentment, won't you? Oh, single person with your lot in life, quit being so choosy about potential marriage partners. Do you really want to live on the shelf forever? Uh, and that third one, can't you get over your maternal instincts uh, by playing auntie to someone else's 30 children? So this week, singleness. Next week, marriage. And finally, homosexuality. May I say, I think these weeks will stretch us. And I say us quite deliberately because... You see, talk about singleness, say, um, it isn't just talk for single people, to single people. Um, No, no, when we teach any topic from God's Word, we take it that it's God's Word to us, for us to learn together how to craft our community life, how to um, shape our church culture and attitudes around the Word of God. And uh, that's certainly the case with this. And so I think we do ourselves a disservice if we never talk about these topics or only talk about them to the single people or the married people or the um, uh, homosexual, uh, um, homosexually inclined people. No, no, I think we need to talk about these topics with our Bibles open, with our ears and minds attentive to God's voice and with hearts open to one another um, in terms of how we learn to love each other in the Gospel. So you... Married people amongst us, you need to hear God's word on singleness, for instance, and, and then so on for the other ones. Anyway, shall we pray together? It's a bit of a longer sermon today. I figure this is a topic we don't kind of get to very often, so I've got to cram it all in. No, no, you know, it's a little bit of a longer one. Um, I hope very profitable and worth it for us, though. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we do ask this morning for eyes that look to you, for ears that are eager to hear from our God for feet to go wherever we're called to, for lips to sing your praises, for hands opened up to offer service to you and loving support and help to the people around us. 
and a heart, Father, a heart shaped by the love of the Lord Jesus Christ for sinners and for strugglers and for imperfect creatures like us. May Christ's way be our way. May his character become our character. And in this whole arena of sexuality, oh God, may we please have your wisdom together. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Uh, Brothers and sisters, perhaps it's a bit of a downer to start um, on, but could I ask us to be open to hearing a point of criticism of uh, modern Western churches, even modern Australian churches, which I'm hoping that our sermon goes some way to addressing today, or helping us to address. Um, Specifically, could it be that our modern church culture, even our church culture, has kind of given short shrift to the single people in our midst and held out less than good news for the single people in our community um, than we ought to have done. So these people may be single by choice, they may be single because they're widowed or because of their sexual preferences um, or simply because relationships haven't worked out in the cut and thrust of life. And could it be that our church culture has kind of squeezed them in a hundred tiny, little, almost imperceptible ways? Let me build it up like this. Andrew Cameron, um, an Australian Christian man, uh, former minister, he he was an ethics lecturer to me. Uh, Listen to how he approaches it. He says, he approaches it like this. The two creation accounts, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, The two creation accounts present the invention of marriage as God's pinnacle creative act. He makes humanity in his image and then makes a procreating pair. Likewise, a man alone introduces the first note of imperfection. Do you remember in Genesis chapter 2, it's not good that man should be alone? That's the first kind of negative comment that's made there. He, Adam, he meets the appearance of a woman with exaltation. And after those uh, creation accounts, the Old Testament doesn't commend singleness. Widows are honourable, yet tragic figures. And the Old Testament doesn't otherwise refer to a single adult. We could easily conclude that to be a complete adult human, we need to be married. See the shape of it there? Now, he goes on, many single people will be seriously annoyed by that paragraph. They've had a gutful of the Christian praise of marriage. Many of them want in, but have found no way in. They're sick of us telling us that it's the best place to be. Then he gets specific, and, and this is where it rung true for me. He says, I'm painfully aware that many churches exclusively praise marriage and treat singleness as a problem to be solved. What she needs is a good husband. Single people have to endure family services, family picnics, family values, marriage guidance, sermons on marriage and sermons on children in endless rhetoric and practice that pays no attention to their vocation. These are people who often support marriage and family strongly. They may even think of church as their family. But this endless torrent becomes too much. There we go. Can we sit with that criticism for a little uh, this morning and hopefully address it? Brothers and sisters, here's where I'd like to go today. I'd like to look at one episode in the life of Jesus, which gives us a window on his rich and full and complete single life. 
Uh, I'd like to unpack one lesson from Christ's own teaching, um, which I think, I think it brings our obsession with marriage down a notch, I think, and helps, I hope, to disarm some of that conflict or at least tension uh, between the married and the single, the expectation and pressure. And finally, we're just going to cherry pick one little bit from that passage, 1 Corinthians 7. Um, here's the thing from all of that. I'd like to propose that singleness, far from being this kind of inconvenient eddy to the main flow of church life, far from being that, singleness points us to currents of deep spiritual truth. It, it, uh, it holds before us, all of us, a powerful heavenly image um, which we all need to see and, in, in some ways, experience. Uh, shall we dive in? Let's start with, then with, um, <clears throat> with Jesus' life. Would you please come with me to Mark chapter 3, if you're following along? Mark chapter 3 from verse 13. <clears throat> there is an irony, isn't there, that um, <clears throat> as churches kind of obsessed in our own different ways, or at least by default with marriage, uh, that <laughs> we worship, the object of our worship is the most complete human being who ever walked the earth who happened to spend his day single. There you go. Anyway, uh, Mark 13. Uh, have you got it there in front of you? Mark 13 from verse... Sorry, Mark 3. Throwing you a curveball already. Mark 3 from verse 13. And uh, we're right at the start of Jesus' ministry. Have you got it there? Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted. And they came to him. He appointed 12, designating them apostles, that they might be with him, just notice that phrase, that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority and to drive out demons um, and on it goes. Now, it's just that little phrase, that they might be with him. I just want to observe a couple of things there. Notice two things quickly. Mark could have left that out. You need to include that phrase. If the point was just to say Jesus wanted people to send out and preach so that the gospel could go out and, and his name be proclaimed and the demons driven out and whatnot, just leave the phrase out that they might be with him. But no, no, he includes it. Why is that? No, I think Jesus, he values friendship. He values comrades. He values companionship very highly, perhaps more highly than we realise. It is not good for man to be alone. Do you remember? Um, we see similar hints, quick aside here, we see similar hints uh, elsewhere in Jesus' ministry. Like in the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, can you picture Jesus there, staring down the barrel of the hardest moments in his life. In Matthew 26, uh, Jesus contemplating his coming death, Matthew 26, verse 37, he, Jesus, took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, so James and John, along with him, and he became sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Not keep watch for me. Keep watch for me, Jesus, because my, uh, uh, for me, Peter, James and John, because my eyes are going to be closed and I'm going to be praying to God. No, keep watch with me. Even at his most vulnerable and his most alone. Uh, second thing about that uh, little phrase there back in Mark 2 is that, uh, so he calls, he gathers, he draws these men to be with him and that he might send them out. Yes, but just notice who they replace in the life of Jesus, who they come to edge out 
in the very same chapter, in fact, in Jesus' life. So keep reading with me from Matthew, sorry, from Mark 3, now from verse 16, just the very next verse. These are the 12 that he appointed, just tells us the names, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee and his brother John, to them he gave the name Boanerges, uh, which means sons of thunder, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, uh, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. Then, so you've got those 12, then Jesus entered a house and again a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, well, they went to take charge of him for they said, he's out of his mind, right? can't even eat. He's gone crazy. Now skip down to verse 31 of the same chapter because his family finally do catch up with him to straighten him out. Verse 31, then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him and they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and brothers, he asked. Then he looked at those seated in the circle around him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister. Now, I want us to feel how very strange that statement is in the context of the grand sweep of the Bible. Because Andrew Cameron was right, wasn't he? In the Old Testament, single people barely rate a mention, family is so crucial, you wouldn't displace that for anything, Uh, single people barely rate a mention, and when they do, they're kind of tragic Noble, but tragic figures. But now with Jesus, it seems that there's a new community gathered around him, let's call it the church, where a single man can stand even against his family and say, no, here, I belong here. With these people, among these people, these people are better and they are nearer and in some way dearer to me than even my flesh and blood, mum and brothers. Could it be that the sense in which we're to understand and celebrate a vibrant, a whole, a wholesome, single life isn't to think of it like out there on its own, out in the world, but no, we make sense of the single life in terms of Christian community, connected with other Christians in the family of God in a way that can even displace um, our family allegiances in and among the community of God's people. Do you see? I'm not asking, that is, and I don't think the New Testament is asking non-Christian single people to live like this. No, I'm saying Christians walking like Jesus might just find a livable and even a compelling real single life amongst us because of the character of our community. They belong we are with them and they're with us. But, you might say, but, moving on, but, you might say, isn't, isn't marriage just the normal way? Isn't it the main way? Like, isn't it the majority experience? Uh, isn't, in the big scheme, isn't marriage mostly what life's about? Just practically, just realistically, just, you know, historically. Now, to that, and as we move to Jesus' uh, teaching here, I'd want to say, well, 
We say that because we haven't zoomed out far enough. You weren't made for marriage, not in the biggest scheme of things, if I can put it that way. Would you please turn with me to Luke chapter 20 now, Luke chapter 20, and we'll pick it up from verse 27 there, Luke 20, um, a lesson that I'm I'm sure you're familiar with, uh, many of us, Luke chapter 20 and verse 27, because in the context of eternity, Jesus says, you know, in the really grand scheme, Jesus reminds us, no, marriage is the temporary one, and the single life in all of its glory. Singleness is forever. Luke chapter 20 and verse 27, pick it up there with me. Some of the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection, hang on to that folks, some of the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection, you know, in other words, when you're dead, you're dead, that's what they thought. Some of the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to Jesus with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us Right, so in the Old Testament, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and have children for his brother. Do you see the emphasis on children and family and your future? Uh, just by the way, you would marry your widowed sister-in-law. Why? So that your dead brother would have a children to continue his life, would have a future in that sense. Now, uh, they set up this hypothetical case. There were seven brothers. The first one married uh, a woman and died childless. So the second, and then the third married her, and in the same way, the seven died, leaving no children. Finally, the woman died too. Now then, Jesus, at the resurrection, which, by the way, we don't believe in, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? You want to see the trap that they've set for him? Marriage, Jesus. Uh, Marriage is how we have a future, isn't it? It's how we live on. It's how we conceive of our significance in the world. Marriage is where we find our hopes. It's what we're bound up in. It's our place in history. If it's not marriage, there's no future. There's no us in the future, if there is a future. And by the way, marriage, Jesus, breaks your little resurrection idea, doesn't it? Because, of course, it'd be a mess... Um, if, uh, if there was a heaven, wouldn't it? Brothers and husbands and which what resurrection. You see the line of their argument? But here's a word, um, perhaps especially for the childless amongst us or those who missed the boat or whose marriages turned out to be an awful lot harder than we expected them to be. Marriage isn't the forever thing, is what Jesus comes back with. And forever isn't all about Marriage. Forever is all about God, around God, together. Take a look. No one's going to be fussing about marriage then. So from verse 34, Jesus replied, The people of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy of taking part in that age and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage. And they can no longer die for they're like the angels. They are God's children since they are children of the resurrection. Folks, may I gently prod at perhaps the Sadducee in all of us? Could it be that in our heart of hearts, that our future, that our hopes, that our highest in this life, it is actually children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren? And so, do we subtly apply the pressure to come on and get married, settle down, and all the rest. 
Why? Because we prize a future of offspring more than we prize a lifestyle that points to the age to come. I'm a fan of grandchildren, by the way, and great-grandchildren, but could it be that we, like the Sadducees, prize a future in those terms more than we prize a lifestyle that points us to the age to come. What do I mean by that? A lifestyle that points us to the age to come. Single people offer a glimpse of heavenly community. This is Andrew Cameron again. I think he makes a good point. Single people offer a glimpse of heavenly community because they're not constrained by family boundaries of genetic and kinship They show how care and intimacy can go beyond family boundaries. They nudge members of families out of the introverted obsession with family life. That becomes its dark side. So look at what we're heading for, you say. And he says, in Christian thought, our loneliness isn't finally met in marriage but in our enjoyment of Christ the groom and through his community. Our loneliness isn't finally met in marriage, but in our enjoyment of Christ the groom and through his community. Um, Let me put it like this. You young fathers amongst us, as much as we fear the day that our daughters are going to bring home that boy that she thinks is a real prospect, whatever we think of him, as much as we fear the day that she's going to bring home that boy, is there perhaps a part of us that fears even more that she'll never bring one home and that she'll be left alone for her whole life? I think if we're hearing Jesus rightly here to these Sadducees, we need not fear And we need not teach our sons or our daughters to fear being left on the shelf as if that is our highest hope for them that they would get married. It's not our highest hope for them. Now, I'm not suggesting for a moment that the single path is an easy path to walk or even a desirable path um, for many, but I am suggesting that we need to have scope within the Christian life for a singleness that alerts us, that reminds us, even beckons us to where we're all going anyway, namely to rich and vibrant and meaningful relationships gathered around our Jesus who meets our deepest need for belonging and connection and family. We are already God's children, children of the resurrection, verse 36. Last journey, last journey. Come with me, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Would you come across uh, there with me to probably the passage that you thought I was going to spend most of our time on, 1 Corinthians 7. It is a wonderful passage. It's rich. It's deep. There's so much in there. 1 Corinthians 7. Uh, If you've got a Bible within reach, please do open it up um, and look at it uh, and follow along. Now, I'm going to start at verse 1. Now, for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to marry... And then I'm going to tell you why that is completely irrelevant to singleness. Look out. 
Uh, and then I'm going to go to verse 32, which is absolutely relevant to singleness, and um, we're just going to have a brief reflection there. But I need five minutes on verse 1. Can you give me that? Verse 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. Now, for the matters you write about, it is good for a man not to marry. But since there is so much immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Um, and on it goes. Now, fair to say, those verses sure sound like they're relevant to singleness. Am I right? Um, the Corinthians had written to Paul, that's the background, now for the matters he wrote about, Paul writes back to them, and on the one hand, he says, yep, it's good not to marry, but on the other, you probably should all pair up, actually, because of this alleged immorality, um, whatever that looked like. Here's the trouble, and I'm loath to raise it, because I'm going to say that our translators have got that verse completely wrong. I do not like raising these kind of translation issues um, because I think our English Bibles are generally excellent. So let me explain what I mean. Please stick with me. I'm not going out on a limb here, by the way. Uh, the most recent study on uh, 1 Corinthians 7 verse 1 uh, is with me. But back in the 80s, when our NIVs were written, they just made a wrong call. Now, uh, let me explain. If you go back to an older version, like the King James Version, for example, the King James tells you exactly what 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1 says, almost word for word from the Greek. Um, here it is. Uh, yep, now concerning the things whereof ye wrote unto me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. That's the key bit, just that last bit. It is good for a man not to touch a woman. Uh, the, that's the only bit of interest. The question is... What does that even mean, <laughs> not to touch a woman? And, and by the way, uh, sorry, and the, the way that you answer that question ordinarily is you trawl through all of the other ancient sources at the time that you know with, that, that use the phrase to touch and you go, oh, right, okay, well, it must mean this. And that's how you figure it out from the context. Now, obviously, the NIV, what have they done? If you have a look down at your Bible, they've figured, well, it's an idiom, that to touch thing. It's an idiom, it's a phrase, it's a euphemism, and it means to marry. Um, so that's what they arrived at. The ESV, which is up there for us, uh, another very good and modern translation, has gone a slightly different way. It is good for a man not to have sexual relationships, uh, sorry, sexual relations with a woman. So they're saying it's about sex. It's not about marriage, it's about sex. Several other translations go down that line. But to cut a very long story short, six years ago, a, a, a study was published that trawled through way more uses of that phrase in the ancient world, that to touch phrase. Um, and what did they find? Well, it turns out that to touch, it is about sex, um, but it's not just about any sex. It's not about marriage. Sorry, NIV, you got that bit wrong. To touch a woman means to use for sexual pleasure. So I'm, I'm quoting there, um, to use a woman for sexual gratification. So it's exploiting, in other words. Now, here's something that's weird to us. See, touching wasn't what Corinthian husbands were doing to their wives. And this is a cultural thing of the time. Uh, here's another gem from that same study. In Paul's world, men were generally expected to find their primary sexual satisfaction with people other than their wives, restricting their sexual relations with their chaste and virtuous wives to the purpose of procreation, making babies. Do you see the culture? 
That was the norm for pagan men in Corinth. And perhaps the nearest in our world is the use of porn in life these days. Using objects of, for sexual gratification other than your wife. Uh, anyway, um, so their culture was sleep with your wife if you want to make babies. Otherwise, well, you know where to go for the fun. To find your pleasure elsewhere exploiting other women. That was the culture. And Paul is saying, what's Paul saying? He's saying, no, no, don't touch some random woman. Have your wife. Your wife gets all of your lovemaking, the fun stuff, the baby-making stuff, all of it. So now, in that light, read again with me 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. Now, for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. But since there is so much immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman, her own husband, have there being a euphemism for sex, but we recognise that one because we use it ourselves. Verse 3, the husband should fulfil his marital duty to his wife. It doesn't just mean give her babies, it means sleep with her. And likewise, the wife to her husband. Verse 4, the wife's body doesn't belong to her alone, but also to her husband. In the same way, the husband's body doesn't belong to him alone. Revolution for the time, but also to his wife. Do not deprive each other. Um, And on it goes. He's not shy, is he? We'll give him that. But as regards singleness, completely irrelevant, unfortunately. So we've just spent five minutes in a sermon on singleness, talking about a passage that's actually relating to sexual dysfunction within marriage. Great. Okay, if you want to talk to me about that later, please do. Let's have a cup of tea. Um, But for now, let's go to verse 32. And this is on point. Verse 32. Come with me there. Here's the thought. Singleness... Even now, even before Jesus comes back, for those living the single experience, whether you're doing it by choice or not, singleness so fixes the gaze on Jesus. And that is a good thing. Verse 32. uh, Let's go from the end of verse 31. For this world in its present form is passing away. I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife. And his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I'm saying this for your own good. Not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. Now, obviously here, right, you married men and women, you're not supposed, intended, designed to give less than your all to the Lord, are you? Um, Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and mind and soul and strength. Oh, that's just for single people. (laughs) No, that's not how it works. Uh, Paul, he's just being practical, isn't he? He's just being realistic. He understands how marriage works. A single-minded devotion to the kingdom of God, it it gets interrupted. It gets distracted, in part, when you've got to make decisions, you've got to make plans, just life uh, gets distracted in a partnership of two. Marriage inevitably convolutes and complicates, and I'd like you to be free from that, all the same, just practically verse 32, uh, if you've got the choice. Undivided devotion to the Lord, that is a good thing, and we should celebrate it. Folks, uh, let's conclude. Uh, and to do that, I just I want to acknowledge uh, a darker side to singleness, some of the grief and loss 
uh, the sadness and even fear. I hope I painted a picture where it, the single life is, it is valid, it is important, and as much as it may be worth it though, even though, even though the single life may point us to something big and grand and truly beautiful in the presence of Christ for us all to come, well, here's one young woman wearing her heart on her sleeve. She says, let's approach an issue here that hasn't been raised, which I think makes single people very sensitive and escalates our problems. It is the knowledge that no one thinks I'm truly awesome enough to marry. No one finds me sexy. No one wants my love. No one wants to know everything about me. No one wants to share their deepest needs with me. No one is there to hug late at night when I'm hurting. No one is there to help me out when I need it. No one is there to share the pain of being childless. No one to express my sexuality with. And believe me, she says, I'm about to explode from sexual desire. Brothers and sisters, whether you're married or you're single, whether you're too young for all of that, uh, or you see yourself as too old for all of that, you're divorced, whatever, we worship a Lord who walked our earth as a single man. He lived and he died that we might be what? With him. With him even after our marriages have dissolved away in the eternity to come, to be with him. Now, in the meantime, let's be the kind of church where singleness isn't just livable, but it is celebrated, where it, is, it, where it makes sense in the community of God's people, where we value it as a beautiful signpost of our coming heavenly experience together. Uh, let's be the kind of church where that young woman could live in single-minded devotion to the Lord, helped by us, not harried about her ticking biological clock or her choosiness or her lack of contentment. In fact, may we learn to admire and imitate her in her single-minded devotion to our one Lord. Shall we pray together? Let's pray. Our Father God in heaven, you are sensitive to us. You know the thoughts of our very deepest longings and fears and worries. Uh, You are there with us in the dark and you always have been. We know that in the Lord Jesus we see a picture of perfect and complete humanity and yet we see a man who in the end was broken in this world, broken for our sake, broken to bring us to you, broken to bring us into the kind of community of which we have but a foretaste now. Lord God, would you teach us as a whole church community to be different to the world around us in this, uh, to shine before our watching world a community whose character is love and togetherness and even chaste, intimate relationships between all kinds of different people. Father, may we be a place where singleness not only makes sense, but it lifts our eyes to our coming heavenly experience around the throne of God for all time, singing your praises together. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.